0: morning happy Easter sort of tomorrow which is always kind of a weird place for us as Adventists right to have that like well we're not coming back tomorrow so let's do it today and that's the good news is that we get a chance now to celebrate things that potentially we wait until tomorrow to celebrate I hope you do still celebrate tomorrow But that's the premise of of us starting out this morning in that I think there's something that potentially we miss in our Sabbath experience, that if we expand outward and if we go back through the text and we experience the different parts that are found within, there's a lot more of an impact when we understand what Easter truly is. And so this is what I'm going to do this morning. Uh, We're going to hammer through scripture And we're gonna take stops along the way and smell the roses and take a look at the scenery and make sure we know where the story started so that we can truly feel the impact of where the story ends. And so we're actually gonna do this twice. I'm gonna give you my entire script, I'm gonna Quentin Tarantino my sermon. I'm gonna tell you what's gonna happen at the end, at the very beginning, and then we're gonna go back through it. And then when we get to the start, We're going to go through it again only at a different speed with a different focus and so uh that may sound like a lot of homework that may sound like a pop quiz there is a quiz at the end i should have added that vanessa's going to pass out number two pencils scantrons so just make sure you're paying attention there but we're going to see if we can add something to our adventist traditions by going through scripture to the best of our ability now let me add this disclaimer at the beginning uh adventists are good at naming a lot of things um, our Sunday service brothers and sisters got to it first. And so I'm going to use a lot of terms that may feel like, hey, that's that's not ours, or hey, that seems a little Catholic. And I want to dis- you know add a disclaimer at the beginning to say, I will use some terms, but I'm only using them because there's not a better one out there. And for the most part, I'm just going to point towards Scripture. So every time you hear about a day... I want you to have a Bible in front of you. And you'll be like, oh, that's not a tradition thing. That's just a right here in the book of John thing. And then we'll be able to just point through it. And I don't know if you remember as a kid, anybody remember Choose Your Own Adventure books? Yeah? Where it was like, I, I was, second disclaimer, I was not good at the Choose Your Own Adventure books because I cheated. Cause it would say, like, turn to page 43 to see what happens to little Jimmy when he decides to go into the forest. And you're supposed to just flip. But I never just flipped. I stuck my finger where that was, so that when little Jimmy went into the forest and it was like, bummer to be little Jimmy, I guess you'll have to start over. No, sir. I will not start over. I will go back to where that choice was made. I will make the other choice. How dare you try and make me start this book over? So I'm here to say, that's okay. Here, that's okay. I actually want you to stick your finger into these different spots so that when we go backwards, you'll potentially have five fingers stuck inside of scripture. I don't know how to do that on a digital form. I guess there's just like the back button. So just know that you can go backwards but we'll go backwards and then we're going to go forwards and I want you to use those same spots where your fingers are held. Does that make sense? Did I throw anybody off yet? Good. Stunned silence usually means that I did. Um, Quick shout out, Patty Chamberlain. Are you in the building, Patty? Patty Chamberlain somehow found a way. It took Brigida and myself, I think two and a half days, to remove all the Bibles from the pews. Patty did it, I think, in 13 minutes. I think she just picked them all up And Mary Poppins them back into their original positions. So, if you need a Bible, there is one in front of you for you to use and stick your fingers inside of the pages. Sound good? Good, let's pray. Father God, we're grateful for this time. We're grateful for this sanctuary. We're grateful for this weather. We're grateful for the opportunity to learn about your story. It's a big week. It is a consequential week in Earth's history. And we get to experience it 2,000 years later. As people who have followed you from that moment to this moment, your story has been passed on. And we're very excited to be a part of the retelling of that story, the hearing of that story, maybe for the first time, maybe in a way that we've never heard before. But God, be with us in this place as we rest here in your Sabbath day. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So let's go back. We're going back to Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday you can find in Scripture um, as the Sunday before... Easter Sunday. So back one week. Now here's a little bit of trivia for you if this ever comes up. I didn't know this until this year. As a matter of fact, I didn't know this until this week. I thought Easter Sunday was always a thing. Like, what day is Christmas? It's December what? 25th. What day is Easter? What day is New Year's Eve? Yeah, all of these are like standardized. Easter is not one of them. A little bit odd, a little bit weird, but let me teach you something. The day that they determine for Palm Sunday is because of the day that we determine for Easter Sunday. And Easter Sunday is the first Sunday after the first full moon after the equinox. Tony, did you know that? Yeah. <laughs> No, you didn't. Tony said yes for everybody watching at home, but also his face turned as red as his mask is right now, so I know he was lying. I didn't know this. I didn't realize we based this off of the moon. So you take the start of spring, the first Sunday after that first full moon, that is when we decide where Easter is. So I say all of that to explain to you, if you go through and you read the story, and you're reading about Jesus hanging out with his disciples, and they have Passover, and then in that same time frame, Jesus is hung from the cross. It's a week, but that is not always the case. Passover can be somewhere else in the timeline. Easter Sunday is somewhere in between March 22nd and April 25th, somewhere in that gap. So just be aware that this year it kind of lined up, that Passover was very close to Easter. Sometimes Passover is before Easter— Sometimes Passover is after Easter. It just depends on where we are in the calendar, where the moon is hanging in the sky. So just know that the story that we're going to read today doesn't necessarily relate directly to our calendar now. It's just where it landed that year and where it landed this year. So a little bit of trivia for you, but that's not super important. Uh, For those of you sticking your fingers inside of the Bible, John chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. Now, Pastor Vanessa just read this for us. So this is a, a quick thing for us, but we know that this is the date that is marked and celebrated as the, Jesus, as the day that Jesus left the tomb. He prophesied this before he died. He said, I will die, and on the third day, I will rise again. You find in this story, boom, that's exactly what happened. It's exactly as God had called it here on earth. And on picking up on this singular day, as you read through that sections, the plot points Bring into focus the need to expand our view of the Easter story beyond one singular event. Because the reality is this. If Jesus gets up on the third day, but he said, I'm going to do it on the third day, there means there was a second day and a first day. So we can't just look at that story. We've got to go backwards to figure out what happened that first day so that that third day can happen. That trajectory will just keep rolling us backwards through time. And to make it easy, I'm going to stay in the book of John for the most part. I am going to cheat a little bit, move into some other books where necessary, because the synoptic gospels, synoptic meaning there are four stories, and all four of those stories are the same gospel. They tell the same story, but they don't tell them the same way. We're just going to stay in John to see what John says. But there are other sections where we need to look at Luke, we need to look at Matthew, we need to look at Mark and find out how we can expand on what we know. But the good thing is this. Go backwards in time. Just keep your finger there. Go to John 19, verses 42, and then take yourself to chapter 20, verse 1. Anybody see what's written there? What's written between John 19:42 and John 21? 20, verse 1. What is it? The resurrection. the resurrection, which starts in 20, right? So Edward nailed that one. I bet you could even hear that one at home. Thank you, Edward. What happens in between 42? There's a day of preparation, Peter says. What do we know what happens inside of the tomb? What does scripture say? Nothing. The reason why it's hard for you to find it is because there's nothing there. This day... This Sabbath day is known as Holy Saturday or Silent Saturday. Scripture has nothing to say. Jesus didn't do any miracles. He didn't preach any sermons. He rested. And so there is nothing to be said about this Saturday. There is no record taken. Now, I want to add this. I just talked about the synoptic gospels. For those of you who feel like sticking another finger somewhere else, you're going to need to use your other hand for this one. Flip to Matthew 27, go to verses 62 through 66. I don't want to get any email about this, so I want to be really scholarly about it. This is a record of what happened on Saturday. But it has nothing to do with Jesus, has nothing to do with Christianity. It's Pilate being worried that somebody's going to come to the tomb, roll open the stone, take the body out of it, and then the Christians will be able to claim, ha, he came back, you couldn't kill him. So to avoid it, Pilate says, let's go put a couple of guards by the door so that they cannot fake his resurrection. That is what happens on Saturday in Scripture. Jesus has nothing to say, nothing else goes on, but politics still reigns on Holy Saturday. So while Scripture doesn't speak of anything that happens religiously, we do know what happens within the Roman architecture of how to protect the tomb. So... Besides that, we have a day to just rest. Now I want to teach you a Latin term today. I've already taught you the word synoptic. Now I'm going to teach you a Latin word. Everybody say via negativa. It's always good. I always love the trust you put in me in that regard. Like I told you a Latin term. You have no idea what it means, but I got you to say it anyways. This is good. This is a safe place. Via negativa. It is a noun and it is a way of describing something by saying what it is not. And so the reality of what it is in this story is nothing. Silent Saturday is nothing. So we've got to somehow figure out what it is by figuring out what it's not. And in this case, it's not anything. So therefore, it is rest. It's this other side of the coin. If God, through this idea of via negativa, the philosophy of via negativa, is that God cannot be defined or identified by any human concept or by any means of human knowledge For God transcends all that we can know of him. So if that much is true, and really it is because what happens in the tomb transcends all human knowledge, we have nothing to base our understanding off of. Scripture does not speak to anything. And yet, in this via negativa, we point to the possibility of a union with God, which is odd because a union with God that is behind a stone seems impossible. It seems as though, how do you have a union with somebody who is wholly separate? But it's actually in this moment that we recognize how close God truly is to us as humanity. God was far from us physically as he laid resting in the tomb. But he has never fully been as close as he was in that the reason why he is in the tomb is because God took away the thing that separated us from him. And that is sin. This nothing day is suddenly an everything day all at the same time and there's a latin term for that so that's always helpful it's always fun to find the word that means the thing that helps you to find the thing that doesn't make a lot of sense god resting behind the tomb on this day we are left with only the presence of the holy spirit and that is a sustaining force for the disciples go back another chapter john 18 you're going to start in verse 28 you're going to go through 19 through 42. I'm going to take you through a timeline because this is Good Friday. I'm going to explain good in a second, but let's walk through it. If you, take your, uh, if you look at verse 28 in chapter 18, Jesus is before Pilate. There's a timestamp, The actual time of day It is before 9 a.m. So it says early morning in some translations. Other translations, it says the exact time because that's when the courts opened. 9 a.m., Jesus goes into the court at uh, chapter 19, verse 14. Jesus is sentenced. Another timestamp stamp in scripture. We can know the exact time. Noon. So uh, two hours from now in, in our day, in our time. So think of where the sun will be at noon. Jesus is sentenced on Good Friday. Verse 31 in chapter 19, Jesus dies on the cross. So he goes from this he goes up the path to Golgotha. He dies on the cross. We know exactly what time that took place. Three o'clock. So we've got three o'clock, and then it takes you into uh, chapter 19, verse 40. Jesus is laid in the tomb, which takes place at another timestamp: stamp. Sunset, or just before sunset. In this case, 6 p.m. There's your timeline. So we're walking through actual time and space with Christ in this story. Which takes us to an understanding. Anybody find it very strange that we call it Good Friday? Anybody? I just walked through, like, the persecution, the sentencing, the crucifixion, and the entombment of Jesus. And we're like, yeah, that's the one day we're going to call good. Strange. At least it's strange to me. But I want to talk about what is good and why it's good and why it's not Something else, because the reality is, what we're not saying is this is not Pleasant Friday. It's not the the thing that we all love. to Like everybody gathers around and we all pop in Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ and we fast forward to the to the good part. Like, what? <laughs> what do you mean? That's the worst part. That's the hardest part to watch. And yet, this is the day that we call Good Friday. And the good in all of this is that. There's something good that happens in the fact that Jesus willingly walks himself into a city where he knows he'll be sacrificed for the goodness of what is to come. This Friday is, like I said, the most consequential day during the most uh, significant weekends in earth's history. And this is the one day that we call good, and it is Because despite the acute pain that we get in experiencing this and the acute pain that Jesus is experiencing going through it, the things that took place on that day created good. And I like stopping here for a moment to be a little introspective, because This is where we as Adventists start to really come into play in how we build our traditions. For some reason, we're big into the crucifixion. The crucifixion is, like Paul says in 2 Corinthians, it is of first most importance. And for Adventists, that's really us. Like, we're, yeah, he died for our sins. It is true, it fulfills prophecy. This is our story. This is how we know that we can trust scripture. We can trust God. We can trust Jesus in in who he says he is. But anybody know the story of Little Red Riding Hood? Little Red Riding Hood. Masoda knows it. That's good. Sandy knows it. That's even better. The the reality is it's a very weird story. I'm not going to tell it here. And it really depends on how European your household was, how that story goes. Because I've read some European versions of that that are pretty barbaric, but for the most part, like, you're reading that story, you're like, there's Little Red Riding Hood. She decides she's going to go visit Grandma. She goes for a walk in the woods. She encounters a, a, a wolf, and then she says, I'm going to visit Grandma, and the wolf takes a shortcut, goes to find Grandma's house, gobbles up Grandma, and if we stop the story there, it's kind of a bummer. The end. Good night, children. I just love mom's bedtime stories it makes me feel so good anyways I guess that's how that story ends it doesn't that story is not even close to over if you stop the story right there you never get to find out that red makes it to grandma's house a little girl alone in the woods makes it all the way there figures out that it's a wolf the wolf tries to get red red gets away. The woodcutter comes in to be a part of the story. Grandma, turns out, was just having a Jonah experience. Again, this is the Americanized version. For those of you who had the European version, I don't know if this ruins it for you, but she pops out of the wolf. Ta-da! Now say good night. Good night, children. Click. Oh, I don't like wolves. I don't have to, which is good, because he lost. I love mom's stories. It's different. It's different. And for some reason, we slow down here on Friday. And we don't typically go much further than that. We just let ourselves stay here. But the best part of the story is still to come. And I know we're going backwards. So we're going further away from the good part of the story. But I'm building some tension and some suspense into it to know that there's a trip. There's a road. Red travels it. Jesus travels it. And we're going to do it today. Because there's good news coming. It takes us waiting till the third day. It takes us knowing that he is risen on Sunday for us to enjoy the experience of the things that comes first. Now, as we move into that, um, moving out of our traditions a little bit further, we're going to go into Maundy Thursday. Maundy Thursday also has uh, a scriptural reference, and so if you will move to uh, John, let's see, chapter, hang on, don't want to get this wrong. John 13, so you're going a little bit further back. John 13, you're gonna start in verse one. You're going to have a, You're just gonna to have to pinch like a section of scripture here because Maundy Thursday actually takes us from chapter 13 to chapter 17, verse 25. Monday Thursday happens after sunset, so it's late Thursday. We know that Jesus and his disciples share a meal in the upper room that we now know as the last supper. It's a Passover tradition, so this goes back to what we talked about at the beginning. Passover this year happened before Easter Sunday, which happened after Palm Sunday. So we're somewhere in that time. It just so happened that year. That's where the moon was for at least them at that time. So we know that he establishes at that point, he being Jesus, a communion and foot washing, which is the ordinance of humility. One last expression of community. Jesus knows he's got time with his disciples now. He calls together the leaders of the Christian church in order to prepare them for what is to come, which will be a broken body, blood that is spilled, and a sacrifice. One last chance to get this into their experience so they understand what is to come. At the end of the meal, Jesus prays for his disciples before heading out to the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's in this point, the section in 17, that caused all of us on staff to pause really hard. Because we got to this, this chapter, chapter 17, which is just a prayer. It starts with a little intro that says, and then Jesus prayed for his disciples. And as we read through it, you couldn't read through it without stopping every once in a while and taking a big gasp where it was just like, we, we, know, we know what comes next. And Jesus prays this prayer, and it's heavy, and it's powerful, and it's deeply personal. It's this idea of who I am Who I came to be, what I came to do, is ending. And so therefore, I'm going to put that in to you. And it's you in the singular. It's the 12 disciples. I'm going to put it into you. You now have to carry that because I am not. And so when we were designing the service, we slowed down here and we thought, what would happen if we just stopped here? Just for a second, what if we put pause on the sermon, and we took a minute to identify what is deeply personal about this text to the disciples, and in the same way, find out what is deeply personal to you? So that's what we're going to do. I'm going to invite Pastor Vanessa back up. She's going to read through John chapter 17. We're going to change the lighting in the room, and we're just going to reflect on what is happening in this section. Not only that, she's gonna lead us in a personal, reflective prayer, taking certain terms out of this in order to best understand what in the world does this mean then and what does it mean for us now?
1: Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine." and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they, they are still in the world and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, so that scripture would be fulfilled. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one, They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. This is a time where we're able to pray our own prayer as we heard um, Jesus pray about what was to come. As Pastor Jay said, as the reader, we know what's coming. But there are a couple of things outlined here that we can personalize to ourselves. I'm going to ask that you reflect on what God may be stirring within you um, as you read how God was so concerned and just wanted to make sure that his love, everything he did on earth, was able to continue to show to all of those that had yet been unborn and to be able to continue to spread his love. I'm going to highlight specific verses, and what I'll do is I'll Read the verse, give a challenge from that verse. Then I will have a moment of silence for you to pray as to what God is calling you in that moment. And I'll close with a prayer and we'll do that for three different verses. The first verse is verse nine. Verse nine says, I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me for they are yours. I'd ask that you think about all the people that are in your circle. Jesus had his disciples. We don't have our own disciples, but in a way, there are people in our lives. If you're a parent, you have your children. If you are a child, you have a parent. You didn't pick each other in a way during, in, um, And there are other families, right, structures where there there is that situation where you do pick one another. But in a way, we are all formed, we are all in our circles through work, school, family, and other areas. So I ask you to think about those that God has entrusted within you. What is God calling you to do with them? Give a moment of silence for prayer now. Our God, there are people in our lives that we have. Some chosen, some unchosen, but we all have the people that surround us in our lives. We ask for guidance that we may be able to love on them and show them compassion, just as you have shown us in your word. Amen. I ask that you now turn to verse 20. Um, in John 17, and I'll be rereading that specific text. Jesus says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Um, As believers, um, we uh, live with the conviction that spreading God's love is part of um, our mission on this earth, and um, there are those who will believe and we ask a special prayer for you and to see where God is challenging you to continue that mission in your own personal life. I ask that you now pray a special prayer on that specific challenge. dear Lord, we don't want to be stagnant. We don't want to just merely um, continue our lives without spreading your love and word to even those that um, have not yet um, truly gotten to know your love. We ask that we personalize that in our lives. Amen. Finally, in verse 23, Jesus prays, I them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Something we've covered in other sermon series series and in this church is how when we wave the banner of Jesus in our lives, that is at the core of who we are. It's in the messages that you see of, you know, our taglines, of live love and Jesus all. And we ask that, or we know that with that um foundation. That is what unifies us. And Jesus was praying for complete unity from all of us. So I ask that you reflect on that now as we pray in silence. there's a lot of things that don't unite us. There's a lot of differences among all of us, and you've created us to be different and unique. But we know that in this world, we can be unified in a holy way through you. We ask that you continue to make that a reality in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
0: There we go. Sorry, Peter. That's my fault. The events of Easter, knowing what we know now in this prayer we find in John 17, the events of Easter are not simply a story that we look back on and think of fondly. It's personal, it's deeply personal. These are these glimpses of invitations from God then to now, designed to permeate all of our lives. To be present truth as we work through what it means to be somebody who lives in the light of an empty tomb. And so I don't know what just happened for all of you. We actually didn't design like a conclusion to that. Like, and then God will do this thing and everyone will see it and they'll we'll go, yes, that was awesome. And then we'll move forward. Whatever happened, happened. Whatever your experience was, whatever the Holy Spirit spoke to you, whatever you felt Jesus was trying to speak into your life is what I want you to hang on to as we go through throughout the rest of this story, because that's the crux of it. If it's not just some story, you should say they're ghost stories, like you're reading ghost stories from God, you're reading all these stories about these people that aren't alive anymore and you're like, oh, that's cool. But when it becomes your story, when you take that story onto yourself, they're no longer ghost stories, they're actively present stories and the things that you can move throughout. And so as you go into the story, don't forget the personal pieces that you've been added into, that God has added into your life as we move forward. But we're going to keep moving, but we're going to pick up the pace now because the story gets further away from the Sunday story, at least the Easter Sunday story, as we charge backwards in time towards Palm Sunday, and then we'll rubber band back into uh, the Easter story again. So Holy Wednesday uh, is boring. There's no, Nothing happens. It's not actually all that important. He just rests. So we think that he's in Bethany, doesn't really say where he was, where he went. So Jesus is resting, knowing what's coming. So that's Wednesday. Tuesday uh, is Jesus in the, uh, basically prophesying to the disciples in the Mount of Olives. You can find that for those of you still sticking your finger inside of the script. John 12, verses 20 through 38. This is the story of the Mount of Olives. He's prophesying about this idea of what will happen in Jerusalem and Point of significance, it's not found in John, it's found in one of the other synoptic gospels. They believe this is the day that Judas went and found the Sanhedrin and negotiated to hand over Jesus. So in this moment, Jesus hanging out with Judas in the Mount of Olives, knows that he's been betrayed already. So something is foreshadowing to have come. And then we get backwards into Monday, Jesus uh, flips over the tables in the temple It's always a fun story. We'll gloss past it in this case, but we'll come back to it as we rebound off of Palm Sunday. But this likely, you know, kind of foreshadowing a little bit why uh, Tuesday is the way it is. Jesus prophesies on Tuesday that Jerusalem basically will fall. It's the day after Jesus is at the temple and finds that they're selling, you know, these things there that are keeping people from This salvation inside so there's a good reason probably why jesus was so upset when he got to the mount of olives and the reason why he was is shown in the day before there on monday then we get to palm sunday takes us all the way back a week jesus travels into jerusalem knowing he will not leave he's entering in on a donkey he makes his triumphal entry on uh on a path of palm fronds last place to stick your finger in the text john 12 verses 12 through 19. There's your full history lesson in reverse, all right? So because we have that picture, because we've had that personal experience, I'm gonna now zoom back through it, but we're gonna do it in real time through each and every day, knowing that we're going to land back on to Easter Sunday. Now, this is done in order to connect the timeline and to figure out why what happens at the end of Easter Sunday makes sense. And I say that because, and I don't, I don't want to say like, it makes sense that he said he was going to die, then he came back on the third day. That is what it is. I don't feel like I need to explain anything there. But what happens after that is that the tomb is open, a bunch of people see him, and nobody knows who it is. That was not part of the instruction manual. Jesus was like, I'm going to die, I'm going to come back on the third day, I'm going to look like the gardener. No, he left that part out. I'm going to come back, but none of you right now are going to recognize me. And I know we've been hanging out for the last three years, like really up close and personal. You're not going to know who I am. That's not in the book. That's not part of what happened. So something happened. There's something that Jesus left out. And it's always the part that can be confusing. It's one thing to say, like, Jesus came back and that's already kind of confusing because that doesn't really happen anymore. But the thing that always gets me confused is why doesn't anybody know who he is why is he able to show up to mary magdalene there and she goes so did you take the body and jesus goes i am the body and then she does this with more hair well what in the world happened how did that happen why did it happen and can we make sense of it That's what I want to focus on. So I'm going to jet back through this story with another disclaimer, all right? I was not there. Shocking. I just blew Jared's mind. I wasn't there. Scripture doesn't necessarily say, and this is why it took place. But I think there is a way for us to help us figure this out, figure out why it happened, using those scriptural references that you're already holding. We're just going to look at him from a different angle. There is a transformation that took place somewhere between where we are right now in John 12, here on Palm Sunday, and when he shows up outside of the tomb that day and for a couple of weeks after, why no one can recognize who he is. Because the premise is the manifestation of Christ looks nothing like he did before, and therefore he must have taken on some sort of physical change during his isolation in the tomb, today, that holy Sabbath, I think we can point it out, I can think where it is in Scripture will give us a path to understanding how it took place. And the reality of that is, if we can figure that much out, I think it's a path for us who are looking for transformation today. If we can figure out what Jesus did then, It walks us directly on that same path if we so choose. So I'm going to start with the premise of Jesus lived for three years in his ministry in what I'm calling faithful unrest. I don't want to start. I'm not ready. Please don't put me in the game, coach. And then one day in Cana, he's at a wedding, and he goes, okay, game on. And we see that first miracle. Jesus' ministry starts there at that point. Start the clock three years after that, Palm Sunday. So that unrest is shown in every single time he's hanging out with the disciples. It's not like you guys want to get ice cream. This is fun, right? Doing this whole like preaching and people are throwing rocks and our friends are dying. We should play Scrabble. No, it's unrest. It's constantly preaching the gospel, it's trying to further the kingdom. It's telling people over and over and over again, don't get used to this. I am going to leave at a certain point. You will not have me anymore. Learn that lesson now. And when he's not doing that, he's pulling them out of situations like, all right, guys, we need to go rest. And by rest, I mean pray until blood comes out of your pores. It is a faithful unrest that Jesus lives for three years. He is constantly reminding death, Is approaching there's an impending death he knows that he needs to be faithful to his calling but he's aware that there's a timer on it and so being on the move being constantly I don't want to say stress or anxiety in the same way that we have today but to a certain extent spending that time with his father trying to do what he does is to move towards one singular goal and I'm gonna put your mind on this one thing From the point he enters into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, it's one singular goal. Peace. And you can see it from the second he steps into the city. So let's walk back through it. On Palm Sunday, on the back of a donkey. A donkey, a service animal. A service animal that is designed to promote service, humility, and suffering. Think about any other time anybody else has come through on a procession into Jerusalem. They do it on the back of a horse. They do it to declare some part of war. It's a hero. Somebody comes in, it's power. It's, it's magnificent. It's elegance. It's prosperity. It's an announcement of wartime that you will be okay, and I will keep you safe. Jesus, on the other hand, on the back of a service animal, says, wartime is over. And if that much is true and you're not in wartime, then you must be in peacetime. Ahead of him, they wave palm branches as a symbol of victory and triumph, knowing that the war is now over. If there's war, then there is no peace. But if there is no war and you've triumphed for victory, then there's only peace. Monday, Jesus gets to the temple. He finds that it's blocked. The people who want salvation... The people who want to be forgiven for their sins cannot get in unless they pay this tax. And Jesus says, that's why I'm here. Literally, that's why I'm here. I walked into the city to make sure that you have access to salvation. And so what does he do? Odd to say, odd to think, because he flips a couple of tables over in doing it. And people are like, ooh, Jesus is mad. But Jesus is simply restoring the peace. I came here to make sure there are no boundaries, there are no fences, so let's knock them down so that we don't have to go up over or through them. There's an identity of peace. Tuesday, knowing he is actively being betrayed by Judas, he speaks to the day when he will come again. He doesn't talk about woe is me and what we're going through now and what sin is. He says, There will be trials and tribulations, but let's speak not to those points of the end of times, but instead let's talk about the approaching peace. And you can see it exactly in John 12, verses 27 and 28. It says, now my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from from this hour? No. This is the reason why that I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven that says, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. We can talk about whatever you want. We can have a conversation however we need to have it. But Jesus and the Father come together in harmony to talk about the fact that there's peace with you now, and peace will be with you again. Even in the worst of times, there is peace. And so in order to know what to do, simply do this, glorify God's name. They say in unison, peace be with you now, peace be with you always. We get to Wednesday, there's rest, which is just peace before the storm, because we know the storm is coming, and Jesus knows what is ahead of them. We know that in the spirit of the Lord, he passes over his people on that passover day which is coming on maundy thursday so as we transition from wednesday into thursday we think about the story of the egyptians 10 plagues everyone's terrified your firstborn son going to die what do we need to do we need to paint over the doorposts so that the spirit of the lord will pass by even in the midst of plagues there is peace for god's people so there on thursday moving back through the story while at the table with the disciples, he's finishing his last sermon, he's praying, and he leaves them with one reminder, which we see just before that that verse, uh, that chapter 17, it says in uh, chapter 16, verse 33, I'll give you a second to look for it because I need your help on this one, it says in verse 20, 33, I have said these things to you that you may have, what? Peace. I'm not making this stuff up. I'm not putting stuff into the story. Find it. It's just markers all the way through. One story, one line, one mission, one goal. That vision is peace. Even on Thursday, when he knows he's going to be betrayed that night, he says, Let there be peace with you. Good Friday, the morning after an ambush, a wrongful conviction, multiple trials where he was without representation. He's then belittled, attacked, abused, disrespected, sentenced, and nailed to a cross. But before he breathes his last, we need to take a look at the book of Luke in order to get this story, because John doesn't have it. He is not done with peace. You may know this story. Crucified next to Jesus is what who? A criminal who asked that Jesus remember him when Jesus comes into his kingdom. And Jesus responds, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Anybody know where else you find in Scripture where paradise is? It's not used very often. He doesn't say heaven, he doesn't say Eden, he says paradise. That's always baffled me, so I got a chance to study it. it turns out paradise is used three times in Scripture in this form once here in Luke. Once in 2 Corinthians, where Paul is talking about something else. And the third time is in Revelation, chapter 2, verse 7. It says, To him who overcomes, I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So you take that very easily, and you say, Oh, he's talking about a garden. Jesus is inviting him to heaven. That's really nice. That's really nice. And it is. But it's more than that. Jesus is living and existing inside of a Middle Eastern context. The term paradesos is a term used only to express this. Not garden, not Eden, it is to be understood as the sum total of blessedness. All of the blessings be upon you. Said differently, it is a special type of forgiveness given only to non-criminals who are undeserving of grace. Even if you are not a criminal, you still might not deserve that grace, but grace is given to you. This guy, a criminal, certainly undeserving of grace, hears the word, may the sum total of blessings be upon you. Knowing this word, chosen from all the words that Jesus knows, he speaks this personally, directly, and with cultural relevance to the man who is hanging next to him, so that that man may die in peace. One mission, one goal, one idea permeating through all of this story. There is peace. Having commended his spirit to the hands of the Father, Jesus breathes his last. He's removed from the cross, he's wrapped in linen, he's laid in a tomb, And as Sabbath begins, Jesus rests in peace. On the third day, the tomb is discovered to be vacant. And after after appearing to Mary, Jesus arrives at the home of the disciples who are staying at a house nearby. Though they don't recognize him, the first words out of his mouth are what? Peace be with you. And then he says it again as if they didn't hear the first time. Peace be with you. I think peace can change you. I think peace can restore you. Peace can transition relationships. Peace can rebuild what is broken. Peace can reclaim what is lost. For Jesus, peace was the mission. And it was also the mechanism. And peace, therefore, became the outcome. And because of that, peace is the word today. This peace which Christ prescribed to a broken people in a broken world is offered in the same way to you. Christ himself was different because of that peace. A man who walked three years in ministry into this faithful unrest now knows what's on the other side of it. It was always, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. Don't worry when it happens. Things are going to be okay. He spent the entire time being in this place of unrest, and so he looked a certain way. But what happens when you replace all of that unrest, and you know that what God has told you is true, really is true, and not just something you hope is true, not something you believe to be true? I think that's why Jesus looked different. I think he set aside everything that kept him from feeling that rest, and now simply had peace. Christ, after the tomb, only had peace. And for us today, I think we are experiencing so many different moments of unrest. Amidst a pandemic, in the wake of a mass shooting, we're unsure of what will happen in the future. We arrive to this place today, now, in that unrest, and it is still Holy Saturday. And so, in that unrest, we find ourselves here on a Sabbath day, a day to do one thing rest. And we have this moment in time to think about what Christ was doing in the tomb at that time, knowing he was setting aside his unrest, replacing it with rest, and coming out different on the other side because of the peace he had taken on. The reality is, we know how the story ends. And I'm not going to take us to the next step. We know that Christ wins the day. We know that his disciples won't understand what happens. We do know, regardless of their misunderstanding, good overcomes evil. Amen. We know that light smothers darkness. Hallelujah. But let me ask you this. What about you? Who is winning today? In your life, in the things that you're experiencing, the things that are happening around you, who is winning in your life? In the battle of peace versus everything, as you sit here today, who has the upper hand? Maybe peace is fading in your world today. Your desire to outlast the trolls on the internet has got you wound up The opposition that you want to wage war on against that competition has somehow left you agitated and irritated more days than not. And if that's you, you're welcome here. And if that's you and you're ready for a ceasefire, if you're ready, instead of having thoughts that are unpeaceful, unresting, there is peace for you and I mean you, I don't mean this room, I don't mean Adventists. I mean you, you as a human being, Jesus speaks to you that peace. And if that's what you're looking for, whether you knew it or not, whether that was the idea that you walked in with, if God somehow spoke to you while Pastor Vanessa was leading you, and you thought, I want to do this, but there's something keeping me from it, and it's the lack of peace, and you are ready to exchange that for the peace that God gives, I hope you'll tell somebody. I hope you'll have the courage to mention it, to find Vanessa after the service and say, hey, I don't know if I get it yet, but I want that. I hope you'll say something. I hope you'll have the courage to step up, to be a part of this gift giving that Jesus gives to your life. Because the reality is this, there's plenty of it to go around. Jesus is not lacking in this peace. And Jesus proves it firsthand in this story. Peace will change your life. Now, it will not allow you to avoid all the storms. You will not simply skirt around the battles ahead. But peace will give you a different attitude and a different vantage point of how to tackle it. And know this, you will not have to do it alone. Because there's a man who 2,000 years ago walked through hell to hand you that peace that exists and it's yours. So, what will you do with that today? What will you do with that invitation? What will you do with that opportunity? Because tomorrow there's good news the tomb will be empty, and Jesus walks out of it just like he said he would. So there is reason to trust him when he says, as he appears to each and every one of us, a very simple sentence. Peace be with you.